Welcome to Your Life, The Sequel. A podcast about getting your act together and making changes happen in your life. You want change and we want to help you with guests and discussions about how to make change in your life, whether big or small, change can happen. This is your chance to become the person you were meant to be. Now, here we are, Rick Roshan and Melissa Carlson. Welcome, everybody, to Your Life, The Sequel. I'm Melissa Carlson. And I am Rick Roshan. I am so excited for today's show because one of my dearest, dearest friends in the world is here with (laughs) us today. She is an incredible inspiration. She has done so many amazing things with her life a non-traditional life, but amazing. She's taken incredible risks. She has had an amazing story. She's a dear friend. She's fun. She's funny. She's inspirational. This is Monique Jenkinson. Hi, Monique. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Rick. It's so great to be here. It's great to be here with you. And yes, as Rick said, we've known each other a very long time. So we'll try to pretend for the sake of the audience. We'll try to spare you (laughs) the the inside jokes. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) I know. You'll probably get some details, but some inside jokes we'll probably try to spare you or or at least explain them nicely. Mo, I want to ask really quickly at the beginning here. This when, When I look at, I've known you for a long time. I've looked at kind of what you've done in your life through social media. And that's a big part of, of your art as well. But what I love about your story is that I know there are so many people out there, especially so many women who are creative, but don't ever tap into, they say, Oh, I'm not good. I'm this, I'm not good in that. But you took your creative side, which has been with you your whole life, but really kind of went out there and did something nobody or very few people were doing. And you are very successful at it. Can you explain Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's interesting to talk to people who, you know, you knew me when I was like a fledgling little dancer when I was in my early 20s, which is so, so long ago. Oh, so long ago. But yeah. So the way I usually explain my work is that I make performance and usually it comes from dance and usually uses the body, usually my body, and often uses drag to consider the performance of femininity as a powerful, vulnerable, and subversive act. And by performance of femininity, you know, we're kind of talking about the sense in which we perform gender. We all perform gender. Or this theory that gender is performed. It's one of the performed parts of identities, of our identities. And yeah, my work sort of has that through line. So I make performances for all kinds of stages, from nightclubs to museums to dance theaters to theater theaters to cabarets. I make visual art. I make video. It spans from very much, you know, in the pocket of cabaret performance to kind of wild contemporary dance. So let's back up just a little bit. Yeah. Because we know your story and your story is amazing. Can you talk to us about where you started and sort of that story arc? Yeah, so I started where a lot of dancers get their start, which is as like a little ballerina. I started taking ballet when I was, you know, nine, 10 years old and got very, very serious about it by my early teens. And then by my late teens, it became quite clear that ballet was going to be 
it's incredibly restrictive and it's incredibly, you know, as we would say, problematic. There's a lot in ballet, sort of the occupational hazards from injury to eating disorders are, are really real. And those definitely um, touched me, the eating disorder part. And I realized that I just wanted more from life than being kind of secluded, sequestered, you know, at the ballet bar in the studio with some, you know, someone telling me to lose 20 pounds. So I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted to branch out. But then, you know, what happened was I went to this school that specialized in contemporary dance. And I, I kind of was this giant culture shock. So I got there. I knew that's what I, I know. I didn't want ballet. And then I got there and it was like, oh, my God, is this what I want? Like, this doesn't feel rigorous. This feels alien. I'm not, you know, I'm not being valued for the things that I've always been good at. So that was quite a journey. And then that, during that journey, I went to a school that really valued writing. So I think during that, I was learning how to write, which I always kind of liked. It was always my favorite subject in school. And then, you know, before I knew it, it was like, okay, I'm in this new world of contemporary dance. And suddenly it's sort of seeping in and the information is seeping in. So by the end of college, I did feel like, oh, I want to maybe create dances. I maybe want to be a choreographer. So I moved here to San Francisco and really immersed myself in the contemporary dance scene in San Francisco. And what was happening in the contemporary dance scene at the time was um, this total rejection of kind of the spectacle and the theatricality of ballet. And that had started kind of happening in dance in the 70s. And so San Francisco was very immersed in this kind of aesthetic of like um, sort of driven by poverty as well as, as creativity of like people dancing in their sweats and being very like loosey-goosey and very, you know, it was experimental and it was beautiful and necessary. And then what I found for a time being immersed in that was like, oh, I sort of miss, I miss spectacle. I miss sequins. I miss shows. I miss sort of the showbiz aspect of dancing. Sure. And I was always kind of flirting with, you know, a love of drag and a love of that kind of aesthetic in my work, but never thought it was, um, I would be allowed to, to claim it. And I was trying to kind of fit myself into this one kind of experimental, you know, square peg or, you know, <laughs> wrong. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Right, right. So that was right around the time my dear friend Kevin took me to see this drag show at the stud that happened every Tuesday night at midnight at the stud. And I was this, you know, very buttoned up dancer <laughs> who was like, oh, I, you know, I have to get up, up, you know, in the morning and go to class. I can't go to a nightclub on a Tuesday night. And he's like, girl, just come. And so I went and just had my mind completely blown. I mean, I had seen drag, but this this club was like the drag of my generation. So it was drag queens imitating riot girls and, you know, drag queen, punk drag queens with armpit hair and like, you know, looking like riot girls or looking like Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees. It was like kind of being this, embodying this kind of femininity that I really valued as a feminist. So my mind was blown and I was addicted and started going to that club weekly and then started performing. So I'm curious about your work and the storytelling, because as a ex person that experiences, and I've experienced almost all of your work. I just haven't read your book yet. But to me, you are really amazing at telling story and carrying the viewer through a process and getting them out the other side. So how do you <laughs> think about things like storytelling? Oh, that's great. Well, storytelling 
So just to kind of dip back into the, the story that I'm telling about how it came to be that I do what I do, um, I started going to this drag show and then started folding drag and the performance of femininity as a drag queen. So I perform just to, you know, not bury the lead. I perform as a drag queen. So I'm a, I'm a cisgender woman who uses feminine drag, the performance of femininity to explore all kinds of things. So started starting to perform at this club got me really engaged in creating in a way that I hadn't been in a while. So it was weekly. So you would go and, you know, just get an idea and everyone there is like, oh, you know, you can borrow my wig or, oh, do, you know, you have two rolls of toilet paper and some silver spray paint. Great. <laughs> you've got some props. Like, let's just make things. And so every week we were just making things, making things, making things. And it was wild and it was full and the audience was huge, which you didn't have in contemporary dance, you know. Contemporary dance, it's like you, sl- you you work and you work and you work for nine months to put on a show, and it's great if eighty people show up. And at this, well, club, there's no there, feedback from that type of an audience. There's, yeah, there's a little bit of feedback, but it's very polite and it's very right. prescripted. Where at this club at the Shack, there were like a hundred and fifty to two hundred people there on any given Tuesday night at midnight, and they were many of them, you know, were drunk and raucous, but a lot of them were also really smart, really discerning. These were all the gays who had been raised, you know, not just on Britney and you know whoever, whatever the diva of the day was, but also they liked sick humor. They're like reading things. They're just there's. It was a really smart audience, and so it was really this lively exchange and between performers too. Performers totally trying to outdo each other. So I suddenly, just by being obsessed with this drag club, I suddenly had a practice. I had this weekly performance practice, which is invaluable for a performer. And so really the storytelling kind of started there where we would do a drag number and sometimes the drag number would be exploring a texture or exploring a fan or a look or fierceness. But I and my friends who were all performing together really got into making these little mini stories. We would do these drag numbers that were these. So we would start there, you know, and they're kind of like mini music videos, but often they would they would have a narrative. And then um, fast forward, after I'd been doing that for a while, I decided to make a solo show. So that solo show had a problem that I needed to contend with, which was that I wanted to do a solo show. It needed costume changes because, duh, you know, you're a drag queen. You got to give them costume changes. And I also always feel like as a woman doing this, I need to sort of deliver more. It needs to be more spectacular, the sort of like backwards and high heels thing a little bit, you know, but also just kind of proving that like, I also can be a drag queen. I'm not just throwing on some lipstick and some, and some mascara. And so, you know, then that became this problem of how do I keep the audience engaged in my solo show? Okay. Lots of costumes. Well, how, if I'm the only person on stage, how do I do these costume changes? And what do I do during the costume changes? So the costume changes themselves became choreography and things like putting on a wig would become punctuation. But then what I started doing is like writing patter, basically what in cabaret would be called patter, you know, the sort of stories between the songs or the way, you know, a singer might say, oh, this song is by so-and-so and the story of this is this. And so I started writing these little stories the purpose of which was to buy me time 
while I'm getting dressed on stage. Sure. I, I yeah. have a, what, what I love about this story is that for anybody listening or anybody that's gone from one thing to another can relate because while maybe they're not doing drag or they're not, not on stage or performing at the stud, there is that same kind of line here where it starts at something very rigorous, something very demanding and as ballet and going to something that is so polar opposite. And yet there's a line that runs between. There had to have been fear somewhere there, like that feeling of like, this is absolutely not going to work that you must have gone through or, you know, like anybody going through this change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, really in a way, this change was unexpected. I mean, it was really such a, an example of sort of joy and flow going from ballet to contemporary dance in a way was something I had to do, right? I was like every fiber of my being. I remember halfway through college, I actually, I was still kind of grappling with ballet and went to this summer program and I was 18 at the time. And I thought I needed, wanted to go back to ballet. It was the summer program in ballet. And I got there and I just remember you know, being there with all these like little baby ballerinas and knowing like, okay, this is not, I'm not here anymore. And this is not home anymore. I cannot come back to this. And this, I remember this girl like asking the lunch lady, how many calories there were in ice. And I was like, I think I'm done with this. Yeah. 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 I like, I am, this is, this part of my life is over. And so I was sort of, in a way I was ripped out of ballet and I was kind of heartbroken. Like ballet kind of broke my heart. So then, you know, contemporary dance, it's like, I'm, I'm in there and it's like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I love it. And also there's part of it that's just like not joyous. And so then that drag just came in and kind of sideswiped me and knocked me off my, kind of swept me off my feet in a way. And so to answer your question, Melissa, like there was some fear in the sense of like, oh, will I be accepted in this community or something? But that was like very quickly dispelled by the community that I was confronted with, which was actually really welcoming. And also then that community, you know, said figuratively and literally like take every talent you have and bring it onto this little tiny eight by 10 foot stage. So I remember one of my drag queen friends saying, girl, you can put your leg up to your ear, like put your leg up to your ear, (laughs) use that in your numbers. Like you have these tools, use them. So then I start using the rigor of ballet Mm. in my drag. And really, if you've ever tried to do a great lip sync, it's, it's rigor. It's its own kind of rigor. Like you could say like, oh, they're just kind of moving their lips to a song and whatever. But if you see a good lip sync where someone, where something looks like it's coming out of someone's body, you're using the breath and it's its own kind of rigor. So I kind of ate it up like that rigor aspect of it. And then, you know, you start to get that and then you can start to kind of get wild. Did you like the limitless nature of drag over maybe the more linear, pun intended, (sighs) the more linear parts of ballet and, and contemporary dance? Well, I think the limits inherent in drag helped to contain the limitlessness, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because there's limitlessness, like you can be wild, you can do, you know, you can do all of this wild stuff on stage at this in this club environment. But if you're staying inside of this box of I'm a drag queen, which means I do a rigorous kind of practice with, you know, the face is almost like putting on point shoes. Like my eyebrows go up here and my lips go here and I always need an eyelash or whatever it is. And you can be a weird creature. You're not having to be a fierce drag queen, but there are still sort of these, for me, these 
these rigors inside of it that helped contain it that then give you freedom. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious. So as a, so Monique just celebrated a birthday, uh, 50 <laughs> years old. <laughs> 50 years young. Shock. Years young. Everyone, years keep, everyone keeps outing me. Oh my God. You're, you're reminding me of, did you ever go see the Follies in Palm Springs? The, the old showgirl show? No. no. Uh-uh. Oh my God. It, it's gone now, but it's this incredible like show, like showgirl show, these fabulous showgirls from whenever their heyday was. But I think the youngest one is like late 60s to like late 80s. And so they all come on. They're like, I'm Lillian and I'm 85 years young. I want to meet her. So so my question, now that we know your age. (laughs) Jesus. um, You queens keep outing me. (laughs) Well, when you have a TV show about your 50th birthday, (laughs) uh, which... Monique did. I, I feel like the secret's out. So right. the uh, question I have, and it's kind of a question I've always had for you, yes. is can you explain what you get from performance? Mm. So people do things for reward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is it that you get from performing that keeps you coming back to do it? Mm. I think it's manifold what I get from performing. Uh, There definitely is a high from the audience giving you feedback. It's always just been my, one of my sort of, and I don't want to say it wasn't ever hard or it's never hard and I definitely get nervous, but it's just always kind of been a sweet spot and a safe space for me. Like there's a way in which I get really nervous before going on stage and then once I'm there, Something just dissolves. And that idea of sharing something with an audience and kind of that feedback loop of their experiencing it is something, I think it's something, I don't want to be too woo-woo, but it's kind of something ancient and something magical. Holding a room, this idea of kind of quote-unquote holding a room is not something I knew I could do as a single person. And then when I started doing it, I realizing I could, it was an incredibly powerful feeling. And it's not this kind of thing like, oh, I need to feel that power over or something. But I think what, what do I get out of performing is also it's ineffable. It's, it's hard to explain. It's almost like I have to do it because I can't explain it. Interesting. Interesting. So at, at your life, the sequel, we love actionable things. Mm-hmm. So where I'm trying to go with this is I'm, tr- I think that what you're saying is that you find it an incredibly rewarding experience mm. that you probably wouldn't even be the same person if you didn't do it. No. And I believe that creative expression, whatever it is, whether it's doing a podcast, creating perfume, cooking, whatever, whatever, I think that creative expression really feeds the soul. And I think that it helps people to express the soul. And I personally believe that that is an important part of the human experience, whatever that is for people, getting what's inside and private out in whatever version you can bring out. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about for people who may be thinking like, I'd like to try something, whether it's being a dancer, being a writer, because we're going to talk about your memoir that's going to be forthcoming. 
talking about how to begin expressing creatively, even if they're at the step before actually doing, how to think about expressing themselves creatively. Right. That's so great. And actually something you said reminded me of something I get out of it, which is this about feeding the soul. And I think that's where I was getting with my woo-woo comment is like, I feel like sometimes I'm, we're seeing each other's souls when I'm Mm -hmm. on stage. I'm volunteering to take the position of the person who's holding the space for people to kind of unabashedly put them, you know, be vulnerable. And you take risks. Thank you. you. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I take risks. I mean, I take what to many people would be risks, but to me, I realize is like kind of a calling. So it's brave, but to me, it's not fearless, but it's also like, oh yeah, of course I'm going to, you know, be topless in this part, or of course I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to whatever, you know, cry or be vulnerable. Or when I realized I had an ability to do that, it's kind of like the why not put your leg up by your ear if you can. It's like if you can be 40-something and naked on stage and connect with people in a vulnerable space, like why not do it? Like there aren't actually that many people who can do that. <laughs> that could be very scary for some people though. I mean, how did you, you yeah. know, how do you say to people you yeah. can get there? Maybe not naked on stage, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, so so then to get to this, and so yes, It is absolutely vital. There is something missing if I'm not doing it. Although, you know, during pandemic times, I haven't been able to perform for tons of people, but there have been other ways in which we can connect with our creative practice and with people through our creative practice, which brings me to creative practice as a way of living life. And yes, that can be cooking, that can be raising your child, that can be gardening, that can be anything. And I think just, I mean, this sounds so kind of simple, but just creating a little bit of time and space to start to do it and to not have to have a plan for what you're doing. And for me, you know, writing, kind of setting your mind free with a little free write in the morning is a great thing. And again, not writing out a plan, not doing anything logical with that writing, but just kind of like dumping out what's in your brain, which is uh, advocated by, uh, I, I actually follow, there are a few amazing arts consultant, arts writer people, Julia Cameron, who wrote the classic The Artist's Way, which is a great book for anyone, like looking for just to unlock a creative practice. And then my dear friend, Beth Pickens, wrote a book called Your Art Will Save Your Life. And again, I think it's not just for artists, but that, you know, in it, she kind of reiterates that artists need to make art. But I also think that people thrive in creativity. And I don't think you need to be an artist to be creative. And certainly, that's important. I will absolutely, and I will always contest the idea that we have to be making money from the, that what we make money doing is what defines us. You know, that's a part of what people are. A part of what you do is, you know, the way you need to make money. That might be completely separate from your creative practice. So starting there, divorcing yourself from any expectation that a creative practice has to be any one thing. I mean, I was once mentoring a student whom she was in art school and she was starting to make art with, she was making sculptures and things. And But then every day she would go to the Goodwill and just kind of pick through stuff. And she would end up getting a lot of her materials there 
But I remember having a conversation with her and she was kind of feeling insecure. She was like, oh, I, you know, I don't have a studio practice. But, you know, I was like, girl, you go to Goodwill every day. That's your studio practice. So let's meet in your, I won't, you don't have a studio for me to meet you in, but let's go to Goodwill together. And like, that's where you're switched on in your creativity. So let's walk the aisles of Goodwill and like, see what, you know, see what sparks you and see what sparks me and have a conversation there. So I think, you know, anything can be a studio. The Rose Garden, the Golden Gate Park can be a studio if that's where you're feeling creatively switched on. So um, I guess what I'm saying is to start, you know, start, <laughs> which sounds, I guess, so intimidating, but starting with a little free write of like, what am I feeling? What's in my head? Even if that free write is just like, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Then you've written that out. You've gotten that out of your brain. Then maybe you can start to have some fun. I love that. It can be as simple as that. Absolutely. Well, and I find that what you said that I think is important for people to understand. And also there are, you know, the history books are filled with people over a particular age mm. that one thinks things should be done by. They pick up writing, they pick up whatever it is, and then they create these masterpieces that they didn't even know existed inside of them. And that is the thing I wish for all the people listening. I wish for all of us is that we take the opportunity to explore, let go of what people think of what we're doing, because yeah. that's mostly about right. them and what they think about themselves. Because you just don't know what you can do, and you don't know what you're depriving all of us of. Totally, totally. Yeah, totally. And I think you need to create the space for it to happen in order for it to happen, obviously. And that space needs to be free from judgment at the beginning. So even, you know, so yes, it might be a masterpiece, but I think also just the idea that it could be a masterpiece is totally irrelevant. And the, the idea that people could have their eyes on it maybe doesn't even need to be part of it. Like if the idea that it does, that, you know, people are going to see it and hate it, or the idea that if nobody sees it, it's a failure, like banishing both of those thoughts mm -hmm. from your head and just doing a thing for the sheer joy and, mm -hmm. and engagement. I mean, it's not, you know, the engagement's not always pure joy either, but that engagement that sometimes the, the tension, the wrestling, it's play. Right. Well, and not all human experiences have to be good. Right. Yeah. How, how, and how important are, were those failures to you, you know, or, or yeah. maybe not failure. I don't like that word, but maybe the things that didn't go so well or that you feel like you didn't do well at, how important were those for you in your learning process and, you know, moving forward in what you love to do? Right. Well, for me, you know, ballet is such a perfectionist art form mm. and that was literally would have killed me if I'd stayed in it. Mm -hmm. And so going into a place like the shack you know, Tuesday night at the stud being like, this can be messy. This can be gross. This can be. And in fact, the way in which, you know, everyone talked about it was like, this is dumb. This is trash. This is garbage. This is gross. This is, you know, and that was so healing because it was already this embracing of failure. 
And then through that, just the pressure's off. So you're like making a thing. And yeah, maybe it didn't work, but it was a laboratory. And so then you move on. And then the next thing is like, oh my God, that was brilliant. Yeah. Or, oh my God, that was so stupid. It was brilliant. Or, you know, all of these. So, so creating a space where you're just, yeah, where you're just embracing all of it and not even, there's not even an idea of like, was that a success or a failure? Mm -hmm. So Yeah. And then later that opens you up to go like, oh, I'm in a lab. I'm trying to do something specific. Did that succeed? Did that fail? What's it doing? I mean, you know, this gets into very much, you know, if you're, if you're talking critically about your work, but I think to most people looking to switch it up and start something new, even talking about whether it works or not is not necessarily that valuable. Like, are you into it? Are you into it? That's great advice. So you've had a very, very interesting life and I'm very happy that I've been a part of it and you've written a book do you want to talk a little bit about your memoir that is forthcoming I would love to um and by the way I don't even know if I've said the my drag name no you haven't not yet my drag name is phonique (laughs) (laughs) but when I created phonique and created these solo shows, these evening length cabaret shows, and these stories started cropping up. You know, there are these stories that I'm telling that are kind of part of this bigger story of how is it that I do what I do? I mean, appearing on stage as a cis woman doing drag, as a drag queen, you know, people have a lot of questions. And the way I like to come at that is, oh, you're here, we're here I don't have to explain this to you, but I'm going to kind of sneak in little, little ways of explaining it that don't go like, I, here is how I am a drag queen. Here is what a woman who does drag is. But instead, I kind of tease it out through all these stories. And then by the end of the show, it kind of makes sense. And so in a way, the memoir is, is that. And the memoir grew out of these stories. And people over the course of the last few years have said, you know, have you thought of writing a book? And this was about five years ago. And I was like, no, maybe, maybe someday, maybe someday. And then finally the fifth person said, have you written a book? And I said, no. And he said, that's ridiculous. And so I went, okay. And this was kind of a mentor figure. So um, it just so happened that, you know, someone was accepting proposals. I proposed the book. I started the book. I finished the book. And then that situation fell through. Mm -hmm. So that's a failure moment of like, that was heartbreaking. And I was like, okay, great. You know, you wanted to have a baby with me and now <laughs> here she is. And you're yeah. like, mm, I'm not that no into thanks. you. <laughs> Ew. And now I really want her to get into a good preschool, you know. And yeah. so I was kind of struggling at the beginning of quarantine. And then fortuitous, fortuitous situations between mutual friends have led to this incredible situation with a new publisher and the book is it's up and running the train has left the station and um, the book is coming out on amble press in uh, early 2022 and the book is a memoir so i've been writing about a lot of stuff i didn't think i would be writing about but i think some of the weird vulnerable contemporary dance that i've made (laughs) has helped me be in the space of writing into some of the vulnerable places. So let me ask you a question about the vulnerability. Yeah. And I've covered some things in the podcast that afterwards I'm like, ooh, that's scary. It To me, it is scary mm. because yeah. I don't have a lot of built up muscle around sharing 
my life and my experiences yeah. in a way that people can hear, you know, a bunch, a bunch of people and that are permanent, semi-permanent until I delete it. <laughs> That's being vulnerable. Yeah. You know, and so I'm curious how you manage your way through the vulnerability because it is a part of our story. It's a part of our human story. And it can and, be a scary part. Yeah. And it can be the scary part. How do you work through the vulnerability, like with your writing and with your performing? Well, bravely. So this idea of bravery is, you know, not the absence of fear. It's the sort of soldiering on in the face of fear. And for me, it's important to be in the vulnerable places because, again, I think that's where we see each other's souls. <laughs> yeah. That's where we see the depth of each other, you know. And I think as an artist, it's sort of my job. If I'm keeping a gloss over everything and not going there, I think I'm not fully doing my job. And memoir, I, I, you know, I think that's part of the practice of memoir. Part of the practice of memoir is like, this is a life. And some of the things that are more vulnerable for me, actually, in the writing of this memoir are things like talking about my privilege, talking about, you know, the things that in a way that weren't hard, because I feel like... Mm. There's a sort of formula for a memoir in a way where it's like, okay, we're going to tell the wrenching story of X, Y, or Z. And it's like, there are some, there's a lot of pain, but then there's also like some, for me, some of the vulnerability for me right now is like negotiating places where I feel like I might get called out as problematic. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So that's interesting because that brings up in my mind a question, which I think would be super helpful because the kind of work that you have done when you are doing a big show and you've done your show around the world. So it's not just a San Francisco mm -hmm. thing. There are critics whose job it is to rip things apart and tell other people in print what they saw and their opinion of something. How do you handle criticism? Oh, sometimes not very well. And sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely surround myself with people I love and care about who I know care about my work at the beginning of the work. So when I'm trying to, you know, when I'm when I'm creating work, I do a lot of work in progress showings. And so I, and, I, and I invite people to look at it in progress. Not all artists like to do that. And I don't do that really, really, really early on. But I usually do it a little bit before... I would like to. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like when it's a little bit feels like, ooh, not ready quite for this to be seen and definitely not by everyone. But I'm going to invite a few people to look at it and see where I'm going, people I trust and love. So there's that's part of the process. And that's one part of the process. I have a lot of dear friends who I adore, who love my work, who, you know, I invite in. And then in, in terms of, of criticism, I mean... In a way, I've probably benefited from the fact that, like, paid dance critics just isn't a job people have anymore, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, in late capitalism, you know, newspapers barely exist anymore, and online news outlets don't, aren't, no one's paying dance critics. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so that dried up. <laughs> that dried up, and it's actually great for me, in a way. So you can kind of create a way of being in the discourse. And then I have a, a hilarious story about um, <laughs> the democratizing of discourse through online, you know, how like online blogs. I was in this play and this is a very, this is a story I tell in the book. And it's a longer story than I have time to like completely roll out. But I, I was in a play 
like doing all this performance led to this amazing experience where I got to be play Edie Sedgwick, who was like my idol when I was like a little 13 year old with an eating disorder and also directed by one of my other idols, who's the bass player from the band Bauhaus. So he wrote and directed this play about Edie Sedgwick and cast me in it through like this amazing series of events. And so, and I was 37 at the time playing someone who died when she was 27, who, you know, weighed 25 pounds less than I did. And who, you know, so I was like, in the, I think I looked good. I think, you know, my drag queen self helped me embody this character. Oh, the other thing is like, do not read reviews during a process. Mm. Like read reviews when you're done. Yeah. Don't read a review. If a review comes out the night before you're about to perform, it is not your job to read that review. It is your job to go on stage and perform. But after the whole thing was over, there was the LA Times had this reader review blog and sort of the graphics looked the same as the regular LA Times. So you would think like maybe it was a review of the show. And this guy on the reader review blog starts in and I'm like, oh boy, it starts. Edie Sedgwick was 37 years old when she died. I'm like, uh-oh. Here we go. <laughs> and he goes, this actress looked like Roy Scheider after a binge session at Sephora. <laughs> And of course, you know, the little 14 year old in me is like, at least he didn't call me fat. Um, but but Roy Scheider has always been thin. Roy Scheider. Uh, I'm like, at least he's a ropey. Um, yeah. Oh my God. So that like is the most, like that was just the most hilarious over the top piece of criticism. So, you know, also my knowledge that like, yeah, like people don't want women to age. People Mm -hmm. think women, you know, like there's a lot of misogyny. There's a lot of, I mean, I think, you know, in another parallel universe, I could have become a ballerina and another parallel universe, I could have, you know, gone to Hollywood. And I think I really protected myself from a lot of intense criticism by not doing either of those things, by actually going Taking a very unconventional path, which yes. I take for granted, but you know, it's interesting at the beginning of our conversation, you say, you know, you've done, you've, you've taken such an unconventional path. And I'm like, yeah, I guess it is, isn't it? It really it is. is. Yes. <laughs> well, and what's real. And so what's really amazing to me, and it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast is that I think that you are probably as surprised as anybody how your life has turned out how things how you've just been you've just been doing the next thing in front of you the next thing in front of you it's turned into a life you know you've had probably some expectation like everybody does but you you are so talented you get recognized because you are so talented and these things have developed over you know who you were when i met you 30 30 years ago you know is different than who you are today and it's all a process and and I think that the creative parts of you are as lovely as the you know friend parts that we share Mm -hmm. and I think that um, your story is incredibly inspirational for people because you you've had these opportunities and you have done the path who says that a biological cisgendered female can't be a drag queen? Well, you you say that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so it's a very inspirational thing. And I, I'm so pleased to call you my friend. And I am so happy we had you here today. Thank um, you. So 
Where can people find more information about you, Phonique, your book? Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is, it's just such a pleasure, such a pleasure to talk about the work in this way and to talk about the play, you know, and just for anyone out there, just play, play dress up, play in your garden, play with your kids, play, you know, with a musical instrument, like play, you know, play, write, draw, play, right. Create a little bit of time. It can be 15 minutes a day, you know, just to kind of let out something, another, another mode of being in the world and engaging with the world. But, um, so yeah, it's come from that. And I have often, I just taken what's come in front of me and, you know, I have this folder in my computer called strategic planning. <laughs> it's empty. <laughs> no, it's not empty. It's not empty. I've actually done a lot, but it's funny. I always think like, oh my God, I'm not doing enough strategic planning. And it's so funny, Melissa, you're saying like, oh, you know, you do, I think I do just the bare minimum of, of social media engagement. Like mm-hmm. I'm constantly feeling like I don't do enough social media engagement. So people can find me on social yeah. media doing the bare minimum. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me phoning it in. <laughs> I try. I try so hard, but it's such, I have such meta, I have like meta, I don't have FOMO, but I have this meta experience on, on social media where I feel like not like, oh, everyone's living their best life and I'm not, but like everyone's doing their social media well and I'm not, you know? So that's what you, <laughs> so I should banish that. But I'm um, on Instagram, I'm, I'm Monique Phonique. And for those of you listening, that's F-A-U-X-N-I-Q-U-E, Phonique, like faux, like fake, like fake, French for fake. So Phonique Monique on Instagram, phonique.net, like fishnets, is my website, which I try to keep up to date. And um, the book is called Faux Queen, F-A-U-X-Q-U-E-E-N, Faux Queen, coming out on Amble Press. That is um, in early 2022. And she's got a very cool music video as well, if you've never... Thank you. (laughs) I loved it. A music video. Yes. Yes. Um, Many, many things. You can find me on Vimeo and you can find all of that through my website, phonique.net. Thank you so much for having me. I could just talk with you for hours. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Your Life, the Sequel. Make sure to visit our website, revital.ist where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you'll never miss a show. Or sign up for our newsletter, The Revitalist, filled with daily tips for making change in your life. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Special thanks to our audio engineer and editor, Mark Cake. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode of Inspirational Change. Be the change you want to be.